Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Over the course of two weeks in January 2021, the stock price for GameStop, the brick-and-mortar video game retailer, rose by a shocking 1,500%. Suddenly, a handful of hedge funds who had shorted GameStop's stock, betting that the stock price would go down, found themselves the victim of what's called a short squeeze. What made this wild ride on Wall Street different is that the short squeeze was organized and coordinated by retail traders, primarily on online chat forums like Reddit and Discord, and executed on retail commission-free investing apps like Robinhood. What actually happened in the GameStop short squeeze? Are there identifiable heroes and villains in this story? In what way is this a financial manifestation of our populist political moment? How might regulatory agencies and politicians respond to this incident? And how particularly should Christians think about this market roller coaster? Today, I'm joined by David Bonson, the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, to simply and clearly explain the GameStop story and what is likely to come of it. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. David Bonson is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal private wealth management firm. David is consistently named as one of the top financial advisors in America by Barron's, Forbes, and the Financial Times. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business, and is a regular contributor to National Review and World. He serves on the board of directors for the National Review Institute, King's College in New York City, and is a founding trustee for Pacifica Christian High School in Orange County. David Bonson, welcome to Acton Line. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, David, I know we have a very smart audience, um, but when it comes to some of these matters, I'm not the smartest. So I want to start with some very simple questions before we get into the specifics of what happened uh, with GameStop and uh, this short sell issue. Um, First of all, I think the public conception of a hedge fund is typically, it's almost a Rorschach test that when you hold it up, people think bad. Um, What is a hedge fund? Why do they exist? And what do they do? Well, in the simplest of terms, to provide a kind of high-level understanding, a hedge fund is an asset manager, a portfolio manager, managing a pool of capital that what makes them different from a traditional portfolio manager is that they have less regulations on them. They have to deal with a more qualified or significant investor that makes that possible. And they're able to use other instruments um, that regular traditional money managers like a mutual fund cannot use, including leverage, including derivatives. So there's a bit more complexity in the tools that they have in their toolbox. But really to be very um, simple and bottom line about it, 
one of the most practical differences is compensation. Generally, hedge funds are paid based on how they perform and they get a share of the profits that they generate where for most traditional money managers, they don't get that. So there, the term is used in a whole lot of, of different ways in the media. Most of them are not very helpful. It isn't so much that they're inaccurate at times, but that they might be, let's say, incomplete. But as a general rule, a hedge fund is a portfolio manager that is able to use things like hedging or even things like accept greater speculation um, because of the type of investor they're dealing with and then their compensation structure where they have more skin in the game. For your more common investor, someone who is not of a, a wealth level that they would be dealing with a hedge fund, what is the value, the utility of hedge funds in the marketplace? One of the things that I think is ironic, and there was a gentleman by the name of Sebastian Malaby, who I believe is a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, who wrote a book after the financial crisis called More Money Than God, that was, um, despite a somewhat sacrilegious title, an actually fantastic book, making the case that hedge funds were sort of the good actors in the financial crisis. They provided liquidity. They provided an ability to go on different sides of the trades. They provided transparency to markets, a lot of research and, and discovery. And yet they weren't remotely creating systemic risk in the economy. And they most certainly weren't asking Congress or, or any other actor for uh, a bailout or for support when things went astray. And so I think that hedge funds in their purest sense just represent a greater depth and breadth of participation in the economy. They can make a market, they can provide more price discovery. And because of the compensation structure, they tend to attract some of the best and brightest minds in investment management, not always. But if one is a really outstanding asset manager and they're going to make X as a really big time mutual fund manager, or they can make 20 times X as a big hedge fund manager, they're more than likely, because of the way incentives work, going to be attracted to the hedge fund space. Ergo, you tend to get a lot of brighter minds. Now, a lot of people will say hedge funds have underperformed the S&P 500 in the bull market after the financial crisis. So apparently these guys aren't as smart as people said they were. But again, that's one of these really significant misnomers. Most hedge fund investors are investing in hedge funds because they're looking for something that is not correlated to the market. They're looking for something of a lower risk level, uh, something non-correlated to traditional equity markets. And so they may end up with a lower return in some years, a higher return in others, but they have a different investment objective. And that's really one of the reasons some of the big institutional investors and more sophisticated uh, investors have uh, been so attracted to hedge funds for a few decades now. Two more basic definition questions. The second uh, question I have for you, what is a, what is a short sale or short selling? So um, short selling in the most uh, basic of senses uh, without getting into the complexity of things is just simply when one is betting on a stock price or any asset price falling, so they sell an asset they do not own at hopes of buying it back at a future date at a lower price. How do you sell something you don't own? You have to borrow that security from your broker. You've sold it, which creates a debit in your account. 
And so think of it like you have $100 of cash in your bank account and you spend 150. Well, if the transaction goes through, you now have a debit for $50. You have to put $50 in to get your account back whole. It's the same thing with selling a stock. You now have a debit of those shares of stock. You've sold shares you didn't own. And this is just the mechanics of how it works. You're going to put those shares back in the future when you uh, buy back the stock. But you want to do it if you're short at a lower price because then you're going to make money on the difference. So that's both the mechanics and the intent. But it's important when we talk about taking a short position that we not just leave our answer at the traditional definition I just gave of literally shorting a stock. Most of the time, one taking a short position now or a short exposure, they are using what I called earlier the derivatives market. They're buying options. The easiest way to do it is to buy a put option. And again, trying to be balanced, you know, not giving a, a kind of silly vanilla answer, but also not getting so in the weeds that I lose a lot of our audience. Um, an option is just simply a contract that can have a lot of leverage in it. You can make a lot more than just the cash that you're putting out if, you're, if your uh, thesis plays out. And so uh, either put options or, or other forms of short derivatives can um, also be a way in which one takes a short position or exposure on a given investment security. What is a short squeeze? So a short squeeze would essentially be when there are a whole lot of people that have gone short and all of a sudden the stock price is going higher and higher. These people need to cut their losses either because they have a limit to how much they're willing to risk or because you know they are leveraged by definition, right? They sold a security they don't own. So their broker might require them to start putting up collateral because their debit that we talked about is getting away from them. So a short squeeze is when there's such uh, uh, buying pressure, uh, meaning short sellers that are having to buy back their stock at a loss, that it is squeezing them out and selling begets more selling. In this case, technically buying begets more buying. It's shorts exiting the position and then it's creating a feedback loop that requires more and more of such to happen. That's a short squeeze. So I will attempt to condense the simple version of what happened with GameStop, and you can correct anything I get wrong, and as well as answer the ultimate question I have here, which is a one particular hedge fund was shorting the stock for GameStop. And for anyone not familiar with GameStop, it was a brick and mortar, is a brick and mortar store that uh, buys and sells video games, not just new ones, but used ones. I've made purchases from there, although in not uh, in not in quite a while. Uh, a hedge fund was shorting the stock for GameStop, and it became noticed, and a group of people, mostly organized on a subreddit, decided to buy a lot of the GameStop stock, driving the price up, forcing that hedge fund to have to cover their shorts, so putting a short squeeze on them. Um, one, is that accurate? And two, how is what happened with GameStop in any way different from a, you know, a short position and then a short squeeze that we might have been talking about before we were all talking about what was happening with GameStop. So the only thing I would add to it, I think your description is accurate enough. It's certainly more than one hedge fund, by the way. There, there was um, a, a couple that had a notoriously large um, size in their short position on GameStop. 
But one thing that is unique and that has certainly generated a lot of attention in the media and, and probably from regulators is that of all the shares of GameStop that existed in planet Earth, what we call the float, 140% of them had been shorted. Okay, so it doesn't take a math wizard to say that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. How can more shares have been effectively sold than exist? The answer is leverage, that essentially brokers were allowing their clients to take an outsized short position. So it made it particularly susceptible to a squeeze. Now, why would there be such a violent one-sidedness to the short thesis? Well, obviously there was a high conviction from these guys and they were trying to put a lot of leverage on their trade, believing in the decline of GameStop. They had every right to do it and I am happy to, I think it's kind of irrelevant to the story, ironically enough, I'm happy to say that they're probably right fundamentally. They believe that there was uh, eventual erosion of the business fundamentals of GameStop that would potentially result in a bankruptcy, certainly result in a declining business that would be reflected in the equity price over time. The problem is that at 140% short interest, it didn't take much to create a squeeze. So there's been this sort of idea out there that all these long, uh, all the Reddit guys got together and were just putting millions and millions of, of small investors on Robinhood out there to go put the squeeze on. Well, the size of the rebellion, if you will, was significant as far as chat room organizations go, but it didn't need to be that big because the squeeze was able to come about just from the fact that there was such a leveraged position on the short side. The math had really gone against them. And so these um, leveraged short hedge funders left themselves very exposed and they got their faces ripped off. As I was observing this, one of the thoughts I had is it, there were echoes to me in there of our populist politics of the current day, that if you looked at the conversations surrounding uh, the Reddit and Discord channels that were talking about this, that organized this massive buy of GameStop stock, it didn't seem to really be because they all believed that you know, the, this hedge fund was wrong about the fundamentals of GameStop. It was that they had a desire seemingly to mete out pain against these hedge funds, people that they decided that they didn't like and thought deserved pain, kind of swinging a battering ram at an institution for the purpose of swinging a battering ram at an institution. Do you think that characterization is right? Are there examples throughout history of something similar to this? Or are we dealing with something novel in the way the internet has allowed groups of people like this to organize for this potential purpose of wanting to inflict financial losses or pain on a hedge fund just because it might be fun or funny for them to do it? Well, I, I think that there's a couple comments I would make about it. Um, in the, I agree with you 100% that there's this sort of populist language that does in a lot of ways mimic what is happening in parts of the society right now and in, in parts of our politics. But I would say that the populism and the narrative 
that exist around this incident is about as uh, coherent as the populism that exists elsewhere as well, which is to say, not very much. Um, the, the issue here is that there was no identifiable good guy or bad guy and, and a lot of what has come out of this sort of populist rage, and you've seen some of the rhetoric from some of the very progressive politicians, was hedge funds have gotten a free ride post-crisis. Well, first of all, there are tons of hedge funds that made money in the squeeze. Okay, there are investment bankers and private equity firms and Wall Street capital that were long on some of the other stocks that we haven't talked about that were caught up in this little Reddit moment, AMC and, and Bed Bath and & Beyond. And they made hundreds of millions of dollars in, in response to this. So as is often the case with these types of conversations, the lack of specificity is very unhelpful. Who exactly is the bad guy and who's the good guy? Well, Melvin Capital Management is this hedge fund that had the largest short position, and they covered their position entirely. They lost about 50% on that particular trade, if what they're saying is true. Um, no one had ever heard of Melvin Capital Management until last week. The idea that Melvin Capital Management was some beneficiary of post-financial crisis uh, policy is kind of absurd. Um, and I think that, that at the end of the day, this is often the case, that without specificity around who is a victim and who is a perpetrator, you end up with a sort of Marxian ethic that is content to, to circulate just sort of a rhetoric of an oppressor and really disguise it, the fact that it is a sort of envy, a class warfare, and a covetousness that is driving a lot of what one is saying. Now, I would be happy to say this really changes the rules of engagement if it were true, that there's this entire new class of people out there that are willing and in fact maybe even eager to play a sort of stock market martyrdom with their portfolios, that they are willing to go lose money to stick it to the hedge funds. I will humbly, and by the way, lovingly, and I mean that seriously, not sarcastically, lovingly suggest that the idea that there is adequate capital to play stock market martyrdom against those who are actually investing for their own economic self-interest is not going to be proven a very cogent thesis. In that sense, it does seem to very much echo a lot of the populist rhetoric that we hear, as you pointed out, that we'd, nobody had really heard of this Melvin Capital Management prior to last week when all of this happened. But they're a hedge fund, so they must be bad because we live in this period of time right now where we know that the elites and the wealthy are the problem, so we're going to turn around and stick it to them. So there's, it is incoherent, but in the operation of the way our populist uh, moment is going, it, it is coherent and that it completely flows with the elites are the problem and let's stick it to them however we can. Yes, and so this is what I would do just to make sure that you and I are being fair and charitable, which we are, in getting to this conclusion by process of elimination. What are the possibilities as to why Melvin Capital Management would be a villain here? One of them is just simply that short selling itself is evil. And, and I would um, dismiss that out of hand. I think that the ability 
of an economic actor to hedge their risk, to provide transparency, um, the role short sellers have played in uncovering frauds and, and severely deficient businesses. Um, you think back to the accounting scandals with Enron, with WorldCom, eventually the toxic assets that brought down the balance sheet of Bear Stearns. Hedge funds all played a vital role in that. Um, now, if one were saying that the shorts deserve sympathy for putting on a very risky trade and having it backfire against them, either because they were wrong on fundamentals or because someone just squeezed them, as was the case with GameStop, then I would resist that thesis as well. I'm not looking for any sympathy for Melvin Capital or any other specific short seller. I'm simply stating that what they did was entirely legal. They're big boys and big girls, and they are responsible to bear the risk of what they did. But there was nothing um, sinister about it. And in fact, at a broader level, I think short selling does provide a general good in the economy. As long as one considers the process of price discovery, as those of us who have been trained in, by Friedrich Hayek uh, will take very seriously, you can't have a free economy apart from price discovery. And I think short sellers provide some lift in that process. Now, one may also say, apart from short selling in its role just as an economic transaction, that short sellers are guilty of, of the opposite of pump and dump. In other words, instead of saying really good things about a stock, letting it run higher and then selling it, they say really bad things and then they hit the, the exit button once they can kind of scare people out of a position. But again, market mechanisms have dealt with that for decades. One cannot be taken seriously just by simply stating their opinion that a, a stock is about to go down or this stock is uh, bad news. They have to validate it with research. They're smart people on the other side of the trade. So I've, I've used in the press a couple of times the last week, the most easy example is I alluded a moment ago to two of the most famous short seller scenarios of all time, which was Enron and Bear Stearns. And one of the really major um, figures in those escapades was a fellow named Jim Chanos, who's a billionaire hedge funder, a billionaire because of these types of trades out of New York, who, who really shined a light on both Enron and Bear Stearns, made a lot of money. But Jim Chanos has been drastically short Tesla for quite some time now. He has gotten destroyed in that trade. Um, and that's just simply because they're allowed to be wrong. They have an opinion. They can make money sometimes, lose money sometimes, just like anyone else. So to get back to your point on covetousness and populism right now um, in the present environment, um, I don't believe that anyone is actually suggesting that Melvin Capital Management is indicative of the establishment of the Fed. There, there was no um, bailouts. There was no attempt to try to utilize uh, policy to their advantage. At the end of the day, um, there is a general hatred, as you point out, for people who wear a suit and tie to work, um, as I'm sitting here talking to you in, in my suit and tie with financial screens all around me. But I'm not trying to be defensive of uh, people in white collar lines of work, people who are compensated well. Um, that, that, that isn't just my point. My point is that the arguments being made against them 
are not substantive or intellectual. They're not theological or even philosophical. They are simply arguments that stem from a covetousness. And I think that is the problem for men and women of faith is that it is an empty argument devoid of actually connecting the dots as to what these people are doing. You look back to the 1980s, and forgive me for the long answer, but I believe, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, that there's nothing new under the sun. And when you study a lot of the M&A activity and the junk bond craze of what took place in the 80s, people said a lot of the same thing then. These are just money pushers. They're, they're moving money around on, on a chessboard, but they're not adding anything to an actual economy. When in reality, there was significant synergies being created, cost reductions coming out of corporate fat, motivations to managers and operators of, of Fortune 500 companies to clean up their act, get, get things uh, operating more efficiently, or they were gonna be removed. This advent in capital markets proved to be very innovative. I think a lot of activist hedge funds have done the same thing. Now, are there some who are sinister and short-sighted? Yes, and I think those things have to be dealt with by market forces. But are these people operating in their self-interest and, and in pursuit of a profit that satisfies their own clientele, ergo their ability to make a profit for themselves, are these people doing an evil act? The answer is absolutely not. And so the broader anger that undergirds the present populist narrative, again, lacks the specificity necessary to be a legitimate argument. I want to ask you to expand a bit on, on what you were saying near the end there. I was sent a video of a Christian pastor who was on MSNBC who was discussing this and, and quoting uh, Luke 12 and the parable of the rich fool. Um, I presume you think that he is getting that wrong. Um, where do you think that that analysis of this gets it wrong? And how should Christians think about um, this particular situation, but I, I also in the larger context of the financial markets. Well, I most certainly thought that that uh, youth pastor out here in Huntington Beach, California, was not demonstrating a really impressive level of exegesis on MSNBC. One of the ways to know that a youth pastor might not be giving great exegesis on MSNBC is if MSNBC had the person on to begin with. And in this case, I think he played right into their trap of, of uh, allowing Christian theology to be presented um, as something totally removed from uh, rational and, and faithful and, and, again, coherent. But the, the argument that he and so many others make is that there's just too much spoils going around that too few people are holding on to. And uh, therefore, as we see from some of Jesus' teaching, what we have to do is condemn those people and demand that their spoils be redistributed to others. Um, there was no accusation of anyone in particular from this pastor of um, idolatry, of theft, of fraud. Um, you have market actors taking risks in pursuit of rewards. And I don't want anyone to shed any tears from Melvin Capital Management. I have friends up and down Wall Street that work in hedge funds. I've never met anyone at Melvin Capital. I don't care about Melvin Capital. I believe that if they wanted to go put on that risky of a short, they deserve to take on both the risk and reward attributes of what they took on. Uh, 
But the idea that someone would appeal to scripture to make an argument that the mere existence of one having um, profited from their role in the economy and capital markets is, of course, nothing more than just you can very easily reduce it to a quasi-socialist and Marxist argument. And, and it is my opinion that that general school of thought has already been repudiated by uh, the, the moral judgment of history and most certainly by the, the clear and profound teachings of scripture. You have organizations like the Acton Institute that have done incredible work to expose that. In this particular case, it's an easier target for those of us who want to defend the concept of the free and virtuous society because this young man making this statement didn't have any idea what he was talking about regarding that passage or this particular um, story that we're dealing with in the news in the last couple of weeks. So where there are examples of cronyism providing a leg up in the economy to the powerful and entrenched and connected, I vehemently oppose such cronyism and would work tirelessly to work against it. Now, ironically, the lowest hanging fruit for me to reduce cronyism is to argue for less regulation and less intervention from a powerful federal government that has no skin in this game. The reason you get cronyism is when you have such significant and large and complex regulation that it becomes a subsidy to the rich and powerful and hurts the small and, and little guy. I can promise you there is very little regulation that Congress or the SEC or Elizabeth Warren or this youth pastor can come up with that is going to hold back the forces of tremendous operators in capital markets and people of the skill and experience and proficiency of the hedge fund community that we're talking about. Who will get hurt with such regulation is the little guy who doesn't have access to the lawyers and accountants and lobbyists and so forth and so on that can help them navigate those treacherous waters. In the time we have left, let me ask you two more questions. What do you make of the response to this by, uh, symbolized, I think, by Robinhood, the app that through which a lot of the uh, retail traders were buying stock for GameStop, but being the trading being shut down, that they could exit their position, but they couldn't buy any more, uh, that it seemed to unite uh, people seemingly of disparate ideologies, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz, into agreement that this is wrong, this is not good. Um, as a, that is a friend put to me, uh, that it's okay as long as only the experts can profit off of it uh, from the loss of others. But when you know you have the hedge funds losing money based on this, but it's when it's the inverse, and it's the regular person, suddenly it's a big problem. Well, the, the problem with that way of thinking about it is that it is totally disconnected from the facts. And yet I'm very sensitive to the appearance, but I would ask people to patiently bear with me as I explain what did not happen and what did happen. Um, Robin Hood is so completely, totally out of their self-interest to block their little guy investors from being able to do anything. It's not even funny. Their market, there are no hedge funders that are trading with Robinhood. So by Robinhood taking on this PR nightmare of the last few days, Robinhood has not helped themselves. They have not helped any other party. They have done nothing but do damage to their brand. And they did so because they had absolutely no choice. 
And the reason is something called net capital requirements. Um, you had an unbelievable amount of shares of GameStop being bought by very novice, new, small investors, whatever. I don't mean any of it pejoratively, but it is descriptive. And when you buy a share of stock, that stock is not in your account one second later. That's what a broker's for. There's a thing called settlement, and it takes three days for the trade to settle, even if it's paid for with cash, let alone the massive amount of margin buying that was going on. So the SEC, to make sure that there's never any holes in the economics of these transactions, requires brokers that are going to be in the middle of a buyer and seller to uh, have a certain net capital requirement relative to the volume of trading that they are facilitating. In one or two days, there is no question that Robinhood was way outside of the regulatory requirement and certainly saw that they were going to be, and hence their need to raise a massive amount of capital. So my question would be, if all they were doing was trying to stick it to their own customers and just play a sort of kamikaze mission with their own business model, then why did they raise a billion dollars of new equity capital overnight and then subsequently another couple billion more over the weekend? The Occam's razor of this, which I assure our listeners is all going to come out, is that they had regulatory requirements that forced them to cut off trading. They did not keep the little guy from being able to sell their position from which it would have benefited their net capital requirement. So there were plenty of people when the stock was about 70% higher than it is right now as we're talking, were able to sell, but they were limited in their ability to buy as their brokerage agreement at Robinhood or any other brokerage account one could open, Merrill Lynch, um, Fidelity, et cetera, all say the brokers can suspend trading. It's all in fine print. I understand it looks bad. I understand that it is something that is a tremendous inconvenience. But again, there were people who wanted to join in the froth. I think GameStop was already up about 400%. And there were people that wanted to come in and add more in that situation. And at Robinhood, they were unable to transact. At other large brokers that did have ample net capital for situations like this, there were no such restrictions. So I, I apologize if some of my explanation is, is a little too granular. Um, I have absolutely no interest in defending Robin Hood. I personally am vehemently opposed to the idea of adviceless financial services. But of course, I'm talking my own book there, being a paid financial advisor. But my point is, I don't have a conflict of interest in defending Robin Hood. In a sense, the adviceless industry is a competitor to me. I'm just trying to give a truthful and accurate understanding for listeners as to what Robinhood did and didn't do. As far as the AOC and Ted Cruz common ground there, I can only suggest that in AOC's case, I think she genuinely doesn't understand it. And in Ted Cruz's case, I think it was um, sad to say a bit of an opportunity for some grandstanding. Final question, David. Uh, what, if anything, do you expect to come in coming weeks, months, perhaps years? Uh, or do you think we're going to see more incidents like this where you have this kind of grassroots driven um, pumping up of a stock and squeezing of hedge funds? Do you think that the calls that we're seeing for regulatory, quote unquote, answers to this are going to actually manifest in regulations? What do you think is likely or unlikely? 
Well, I don't believe that you're going to see a new changing of the guard where it becomes really easy for uh, chat room organized, you know, investors to get together and put short squeezes on hedge funds. I, I doubt you will see other positions that end up at 140% short interest. But again, if the overwhelming fundamental sentiment against the GameStop had been short and negative, and yet the float was 40% short interest instead of 140%, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So the excessive leverage of those hedge funds kind of teed up the ability of this to happen. Um, look, this also, back to my Ecclesiastes theme of there being nothing new under the sun, there was plenty of online rumors and stock promotion and stock talking down back in the late 90s when chat rooms and AOL and Yahoo and these things were first taking off. Um, and the market ends up kind of sorting through it. You're much like the boy who cried wolf, you really can't manipulate a, uh, a stock over and over because at some point the people stop listening, reputation uh, matters, you know, and, and you're just dealing with very large and very robust capital markets as a testimony to the strength of uh, financial markets in the United States. So the, your, the, the more important part of your question, honestly, is where we go with this regulatory wise. And I sort of don't have any idea what a bunch of grownups getting in a room together would be able to come up with. I think they can state some things that are going to sound tough, but honestly, I don't know what meat they could put on the bone that comes out of this. They're not going to ban short selling. Uh, perhaps they could try to give guidance to brokers as to what level of leverage they're going to allow and not allow, all of which can always be easily skirted in a number of different ways. So I just, I think that, yeah, there will be efforts to, there will be hearings, but I have seen this my entire adult life. You get a lot of people in Congress that don't understand financial markets, that get together, fueled by a populist narrative that you and I have discussed here today, and you're going to be in for a few torturous hours of grandstanding. And at the end, nothing will come of it. David Bonson is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal private wealth management firm. David, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you very much for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.